get the weeks that you missed because it's, I think, a really important for us uh, a series going forward. Uh, but last week as we close this, I, I got to just l- be really honest. I'm going to deal with some, uh, some pretty complex things this weekend as I try to kind of tie some loose ends together for the series. Uh, this weekend, just, it just happens to be a week there's going to be a, a lot of teaching. And I'm going to be doing some pretty in-depth teaching, so I'm going to have to ask you to like focus and um, and and somehow be attentive. Um, I, it's not that you're not normally, um, but uh, th- this is uh, it. Just it's just one of those weekends, and I know you're like it's the weekend, and I don't want to have to think too much. But you're going to have to give it a shot this weekend. Um, but here's the question I want to open up with, and the question is: it's a pretty critical question, I think. The question is this: Have you accepted Jesus as your teacher? And before you answer like uh, the typical kind of quick church answer, well, of course I have, I want you to actually think about that question. In a lot of church environments, we talk a lot about accepting Jesus as our Savior, and that's an important question. But I want to ask you this, have you accepted Jesus as your teacher? And I want to try to build a case that we shouldn't have separated those two things. But the concept of separating Jesus as our Savior and Jesus as our teacher is something that happened in, our, in church history in our country, but the original followers of Jesus would have never seen such a distinction, I don't believe. Let me give you a little bit of church history, and again, I know you're probably not interested in church history, and some of you are not history buffs anyway, so I'll try to make this quick. But about 100 years ago in the United States, there was a split within Christianity, within the church. And it's sometimes referred to as the liberal conservative or the liberal or orthodox uh, split. But issues like the authority of the Bible and miracles and the resurrection and the identity of Jesus began to come into question. And there were these two camps. The first camp said, you know what, we have decided that Jesus was not really divine. He was not really the Son of God. All the stuff that's in the Bible about him being the Son of God, it's just myth. The, the miracles that he did, they didn't really do any miracles. There was no resurrection. Uh, Jesus was really just a great moral, ethical teacher. He was a wise Jewish sage that traveled around and taught people about eternal truths. And all that other stuff, the miracles and the resurrection, was just added by overzealous followers some years later as they put the New Testament together. That's one camp. In response to that, another group came along and said, no, no, no. He is not just a teacher. He's he's more than that. He's divine. He's the Son of God. He did miracles. He did die. He did rise. He is our Savior. He saved us from our sins. And I believe it's a good thing to defend that. I I think that those things are true. We align ourselves with the latter group. We believe Jesus was God, and he did die, and he did rise, and he did do miracles. He did save us from our sins. But in the process of doing something good, a bad thing happened. Just like Jesus' role as Savior of our sins got lost on one side in one camp, so Jesus' role as teacher got lost on the other side. And for those of us who grew up in more orthodox or conservative side of the faith, Jesus' role as teacher became significantly de-emphasized. The focus became so much on Jesus as Savior, on the cross, on the resurrection, on forgiveness, on heaven, We forgot about the three years of ministry that Jesus spent where his focus was on his teaching. Teaching people how to enter into the life they've always wanted to live. This is really important. The concept of Jesus as Savior and Jesus as teacher should never be separated. And the first followers of Jesus would not have even understood that distinction. This is critical because life in the kingdom of God, what we've been talking about for the last few weeks... The life of transformation, of morphing, cannot be done unless we accept Jesus as teacher. And one of the reasons I believe there is a crisis of transformation in the church is that this focus, this shift on Jesus as Savior, but at the expense of Jesus as teacher, 
has created this, this, uh, this separation of understanding the importance of his teaching. So before I go on, I want to just communicate a couple truths, some premises for the message today. And the first one is this. I believe that Jesus' teaching was central to why he came. Jesus did three years of ministry, and it was not just about treading water, about looking for people to heal. The Gospels are clear. There was much training, much teaching that was going on. Jesus was always looking for opportunities to teach, whether it be in the synagogue or by a lake or along a road. And he taught with great authority, the New Testament says. The second truth is this. There should be no distinction between accepting Jesus as Savior and accepting him as teacher. Again, I think these were wrongly separated, and they cannot really be separated. Jesus said, if you follow me, you'll discover in my teaching that I know what I'm talking about and that I can be trusted, and you give your life over to me. That's about trusting him. And then I will give you salvation, life, here and eternally. They're all tied together, this teaching and this Savior peace. So it brings us back to that question. Have you accepted Jesus as your teacher? What does that even mean? Have you devoted yourself to his teaching, to his way of life? Have you placed your trust in him to the degree that you do what he says? What I want to do in the time we have here this morning is I want to hone in on a core or essential theme of Jesus' teaching. And by doing so, I want to try to illustrate the way that Jesus taught. It's important that we understand not only what he taught, but how he taught. And I invite you to keep this question in mind. Have you accepted Jesus as your teacher? If you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 12. We've been in the book of Mark this whole series. Mark 12. If you don't have your Bible with you, just take the little insert out of your bulletin if you don't mind. Because uh, the text should be in there. You can follow along this way. Mark 12, and I'm going to keep on going because I have a lot of ground to cover. Starting in verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel. Sometimes referred to as the Shema, which means hear. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. And then he quotes Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, and notice it says, well said, teacher. The man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You understand what it means to enter into life. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is really important. Jesus came to be your teacher. You've had many teachers. You've had science teachers and history teachers and spelling teachers and literature teachers. If you've studied foreign languages, you've had a Spanish teacher or a German teacher or a French teacher. If you went to business school, you've had business teachers. If, you have a, if you're a doctor, you've had medical teachers. If you're a lawyer, you've had law teachers. Some of you have uh, sat down with a counselor at one point or another and had someone teach you about marriage or dealing with depression or maybe parenting. Maybe you've read books on those kinds of subjects and you can have teaching through that. Those are teachers. Some of you have a financial advisor. That's just a teacher. Teaches you how to handle your money in a wise way. Some of you have had coaches and athletics. Maybe some of you still have a personal trainer. That's still a teacher. What you're saying to these people, in essence, is I'm going to place my trust in you. I'm going to give you authority over my life to a certain degree. I believe you know what you're talking about in a certain arena, whether it's science or Spanish or finances or marriage or, or f- personal fitness. I'm going to do what you say. 
I'm going to learn to know and do what you know and do, whether it's athletics or finances or whatever. How many of you have taken piano lessons at one point or another in your life? How many of you quit? Yeah, same people. Um, In that season when you took piano lessons, you placed yourself under the authority of a teacher. You said, I'm going to place my trust in you. Uh, You want yet a teacher to teach you what they know and how to do what they do. They can play, you can't. You say, I trust you, and so you can teach me, and I'll do what you say. I'll practice as you say. I'll put my hands in the right form that you say. I will do the lessons that you tell me to do. You have accepted them as your teacher. It's just that practical. Jesus came to be your teacher, to teach you how to have life, life in the kingdom of God. Jesus came to be your teacher. He is more than that. He is Savior as well, but he's not less than that. He's not just your Savior. He is your teacher. And the question is, have you accepted him as your teacher? Do you really believe that he knows what he's talking about? about life, about relationships, about morality, about finances, about how to deal with enemies, about how to manage your time. When you read his teachings, do you believe that he knows more about life and God and relationships than you do? So that when you find yourself disagreeing with what he says, you're willing to say, well, either I misunderstand or I'm wrong. I trust him. I'm under his authority, and so I'm willing to do what he says, even if I don't agree or it doesn't make sense. Do you believe Jesus knows what he's talking about? Do you trust him? Not about certainty. There's no certainty in life, but do you trust him? Are you willing to do what he says? A primary sign of trust in a teacher is, I'm willing to do what they say. Now, in this passage in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is teaching. And in his teaching, he lays out what is central. And this comes up over and over and over in his teaching as well as the teaching in the New Testament. In Jesus' day, there was a lot of clutter associated with religion. Lots of rules, lots of rituals, lots of ceremony, lots of commands. Jesus says, I have come to show you life in the kingdom of God. And it's marked at its essence by love. Love of God and love of people. And it's just not that complicated. But if you're going to receive Jesus as your teacher, you have to take these two things seriously. Love God, love people. Now, let me ask you a question. Really practically. How many of you have ever known a person who called themselves a Christian? It doesn't matter what denominational, Catholic, Protestant, whatever. Have you, how many of you have known, known a person who called themselves a Christian in one form or another, who went to church year after year, who affirmed the right beliefs and had a fair amount of religious or Bible knowledge, but did not grow deeper and deeper and deeper in love with God and people? Anybody ever know someone like that? Oh, okay. Well, let's not look at other people for a minute. Let's look at ourselves. Let's talk about you. Last week, actually, let's not even say last week. Let's say, let's say yesterday. Maybe let's just look at this morning. Is there any time this morning that you have failed to overflow with love for God and people? You know, Martin Luther, before he started the Protestant Reformation, was a monk, and he used to go to confession for hours and hours every day. And the other monks were flabbergasted by this. They're like, Martin, you're a monk. For heaven's sake, what kind of trouble are you getting into? You live in a monastery. And he said, you know what? I am scandalized by my inability to fully love God and people for even five minutes at a time. I want to suggest to you in our day, we are not scandalized enough by our lack of love. Sometimes in the news we hear about a high-profile pastor of a church that gets in trouble in his church because of a moral failure. He commits adultery or something. And that's not a good thing. 
But you know, I've never hear, heard of a pastor leaving a church because of lack of love. Somehow we don't see that as a moral failure. In the church at large, in the average church, if you have an affair with your neighbor and word gets out, it'll be a scandal. And again, that's not a good thing. But the truth is, you can live next door to your neighbor, and I, by neighbor, I mean neighbor in your broad sense, people you work with and associate with, and year after year, you can you cannot really pour yourself out in love for them, and nobody will be shocked. We are not scandalized by a failure to love in the church. But I'll tell you who was. Jesus was. We must keep coming back to this. Too often, religious people, and that would be most of us, tend to want to measure our faith, our spiritual growth, in trivial ways, what, what sociologists call boundary markers. We have lists of do's and don'ts. And so when someone asks us, how is our spiritual life going, we, t- our ten- we tend to think, well, have I avoided the don'ts and have I done enough of the do's? But when somebody asks you how your spiritual life is going, according to Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, you should, your first thought should be, am I growing more and more in love with God? And am I growing more and more in love with people? How has this gotten lost? If this is so central, how has this gotten lost? This takes us back to our original thought. I believe when we separated Jesus as teacher and savior, when we separated those two concepts, we began to misunderstand the purpose of Jesus' teaching. We began to think of his teaching simply as the right answers to the questions of what do I have to know and do to get into heaven? Give me the right information so that I can have the right answers. Or give me the right information so I can do the religious kinds of things. I can conform. This is a really critical distinction. Jesus' purpose in teaching was not to bring information or confirmation, but rather transformation. And let me give you a quick illustration of that. In Mark chapter 7, you don't need to turn there. We're just going to put it on the screen. Again, we're spending our time in Mark here. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus says this. He replied, and it's Jesus talking, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, you actors. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips. They know all the right answers, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. They, they do all these religious th- rituals, these ceremonies. They do all the churchy stuff. Their, their, their lives are concerned with churchy stuff, but their teachings are but rules taught by men. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Jesus is talking about his teaching and what it is and what it is not. And the point he's making is when we, when we mark our faith, our Christian life, when, when we kind of measure it being about rituals and rules and regulations, then we move away from anything that can affect our heart. Let me give you a practical illustration about this. Remember when you went to get your driver's license and you had to do the uh, little test and so before you got ready to do that, they gave you a little booklet like when you are 16, the rules of the road booklet. Everybody remember the rules of the road booklet and it's about, you know, how to change lanes and where to, you know, all this stuff. I don't remember it anymore. Um, but the, the, the uh, you have the rules of the road and the, the rules of the road is simply about going in and getting the right answers so you can get the permission to take the driving portion of the driver's test. Is the rule, I mean, just ask you, is the rules of the road booklet designed to transform your heart? No, it's just about information to get the right answers on the test. That, you know how you know that? Because the people that enforce the rules of the road never mess with your heart. They're looking for breaking of the rules. So, for instance, a police officer will never pull you over and say, I know you weren't speeding, but I sensed in your heart you have anger toward other drivers. <laughs> it's not going to happen. It's not about your heart. It's about the rules. How many of you have not had a ticket in the last five years? Okay, you need to know the rest of us don't really care. Um, 
Really, because the point is, it's not that your heart is right by any means. It's just you didn't get caught. We all know the truth. Now, this is important. Some people, some churches, see Jesus' teachings as kind of a rules for the road of life. They're like additional laws, additional commands, adding on to the Old Testament that we have to follow. It's about information or it's about confirmation, conforming to a certain religious perspective. But that's not what Jesus' teaching was about. Jesus' teaching was about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, to be a transformed person. Jesus teaches for transformation of the heart. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they sought to prove that they were the most informed about the rules because that equaled righteous. Or they, they sought to prove they were most conformed to the religious way of life because that equaled righteousness. But their hearts weren't changed. They were not more in love with God or more in love with people. They were not transformed. And so the rules just became a means of keeping score, of trying to see who's in and who's out. So Jesus comes along and says, you take your religion seriously, but you're missing what God is up to. God is up to the transformation of the human heart. That, that, that's what hope's mission is, to make fully transformed followers of Jesus who will go out and, and transform this state by transforming its heart in Springfield. So we go back to this distinction. Jesus' purpose in teaching was not to bring information or confirmation, but rather transformation. And this is a very specific kind of special point of focus I want to mention. If we don't understand the way Jesus taught, we will miss the point of what he taught. The reason this is important is because we have all grown up in a Western culture, for the most part. Maybe a few of us didn't, but most of us did, in a Western American-European kind of model for teaching. And the model for teaching in the Western culture is about information dump. You go to school and the teacher dumps information into your brain. And your job is to regurgitate that information onto a test later on. That's the way the Western model works. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. That's just the model. And so the age-old question that we all ask when we're students, as our teachers are pouring their hearts out to us, is do I have to know this for the final? If I don't, I'm going to check out. The understanding is it's about our brains. It's not about our hearts. And we still carry this on into adulthood. And, and so we see magazine articles about six steps to have a good marriage or five steps to get your finances under control. You watch Oprah and there's four steps to be a good parent. Everything is formulaic. Everything is about information. But Jesus, again, taught for transformation of the heart. Jesus had two particular styles of teaching he used. One is by using parables. We spent all summer, 11 weeks, talking about through Jesus' parables, a series called Pictures of Life. If you weren't here, I encourage you to pick it up. Jesus used parables because they paint pictures, pictures of what life looks like. And a parable means to throw alongside. So he would take ordinary stuff of life, farming and seeds and things, and he would throw along, alongside spiritual truth. The second model that Jesus used for teaching, and this is what I want to focus on for the remaining moments we have, is that Jesus taught by comparing and contrasting what can be, can be called prevailing wisdom. Prevailing wisdom. He wanted to teach us what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. So he'd say, here's what people, how people live now, but here's what it could like, look like to live let me give you an example. Luke chapter 14. Again, you'll need to turn there and I'll put it on the screen. When he, Jesus, noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. Okay, so Jesus is going to teach, combining these two models, a parable, but also comparing and contrasting prevailing wisdom. And he watches, he's at a dinner party, and he watches how people have moved in to this dinner party, jockeying for position, at the positions of importance. You have to understand in this culture that the most important seat was the seat right next to the host. It was usually a big table, people sitting on both sides. The seat right next to the host was the, the seat of honor. And so people were jockeying for that seat and then who could get closest to that seat. And Jesus sees this and he understands, like we all do, that there are the, 
you know, there are places where it's the best seats. Let me, just so you're thinking about this. If you go to a concert, we had the Lincoln Brewster concert um, Thursday night here. If you go to the, a concert, where are the best seats? Up front, yeah. If you go to a ball game, if you go to the, the playoffs, where are the best seats for a ball game? Up front, right behind plate, right behind the dugout. If you come to church, where apparently are the best seats? Right there, yeah. All right, we're all on the same page now. Not as dumb as I look. Okay, verse 8. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited, if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take this, uh, the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and who humbles himself will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Okay, now think about what we talked about. Jesus is not giving you information. He's teaching for transformation. He is not giving you information about how you can be acknowledged in a public setting. He's not giving you rules to conform to. Jesus is saying simply this, the prevailing wisdom of culture is you should always be thinking about your status. You should always be trying to schmooze. You should always be trying to play the game. You should always be trying to get ahead. But what if you thought about it differently? Prevailing, uh, contrasting, comparing and contrasting prevailing wisdom with life in the kingdom. In the kingdom, it's about loving God and loving people. So you just simply put yourself in God's hands. You don't even play the game anymore. You just rest in God. You don't need men's attention. You don't, you don't need all that affirmation. God sees you. He loves you. He values you. Just rest in that. He's saying contrast that kind of life with the prevailing wisdom, which is always about negotiating for status. Do you think there might be more peace and joy in the life in the kingdom? Because you're not always having to work. You're not always scheming. And thus your heart can be transformed. It's not about rules. It's about conforming or being transformed, not being conformed. When we decide we don't want to worry anymore about our image or about trying to position ourselves, or working for status, trying to validate our worth, then you can let all that stuff go. He also makes this point, uh, point about giving a dinner. He says when you give a dinner, don't invite your relatives and your friends. Again, if we take this as rules, we think that he's making some kind of command. That's not the case at all. He is not saying you can't invite your friends or your relatives to dinner. Some of you were like, shoot, I thought he said I don't have to invite my relatives to dinner ever again. Jesus said it. No. What he's saying is put all that stuff aside. Live in the kingdom of God. See, the prevailing wisdom says you have a limited amount of time and a limited amount of resources. So use it in such a way that you'll get a payback. You'll get something in return for what you give. But what if you just live in the kingdom of God and don't worry about that kind of stuff? If you want to have your relatives over, have your relatives over. But what if you just simply decide, I'm going to love God and love people and simply serve people who maybe don't have anything to offer me? Kids or the poor, Kenyans or Haitians, single moms, the sick. Again, Jesus' teaching is not about information or confirmation. It's not about rules or laws. It's simply what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, to be transformed. And what it's like to live in the kingdom of God is sometimes hard to convey because it's all about the heart. And the heart is not easily measurable. And, and 
living in the heart kind of runs counter to our instinct to try to legalize things and, and give boundary markers because that way it's easier to keep score and define righteousness and prove to herself and to prove to God and the world that I'm a good person. But again, that wasn't Jesus' goal. He wants to show us what it looks like to have life. So he paints these pictures through the parables or he com- compares and contrasts prevailing wisdom. So here's what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, to love God and love people. One more example and then we'll be done. In Matthew chapter 5, this is a part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. You've heard that it was said, again, and that's, a, that's a, always a key when Jesus used that phrase, that he's comparing and contrasting conventional wisdom. You've heard it said, this is the way everybody thinks, but let me give you another way of thinking. So you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's right out of the Old Testament. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you, take your tunic and let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, the Roman soldiers could force people to, to haul things for them for a mile. Go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Okay, again, knowing what we have talked about now, these are not rules, these are not laws, these are not additional commands. He's describing life in the kingdom of God, loving God and loving people. So, for instance, I have encountered m- many smart Christians who come to me with questions like this. I have a brother who's always coming and asking for me for money, and he uses the money in very destructive ways in his own life. But I guess because Jesus says, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you, I guess I have to keep giving it to him because Jesus tells me I have to. But that's not the point he's making. These are not rules. This is about life in the kingdom, and life in the kingdom is about acting lovingly toward other people. Sometimes the loving thing to do is to stop enabling destructive behavior. But see, the problem is when we live like these are rules, then we see following Jesus as a nice thing, but something that's not really possible in the real world. Because who could do all these things in form of rules? And we see these teachings as nice, but not practical or realistic. This is really important. When Jesus is teaching, he is not giving more laws and rules. Rather, he is illustrating what it looks like through pictures and comparing and contrasting, prevailing wisdom, what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, to live a life of love of God and people. This is not legalistic. You do not apply these rules mechanically. It requires wisdom and discernment to live out a life of love. See, Jesus, and this is going to sound dumb, and I don't mean to sound dumb, but Jesus was a really smart guy. And he taught not just some pretty ideas that were nice in theory, but totally impractical. Jesus was a really smart guy who thought through what he was teaching about. See, it's so often misunderstood. Also in that passage in in Matthew 5, he talks about turning the cheek. And I've actually heard that taught about, you know, Jesus commands us to turn the other cheek. Therefore, it is... It is immoral for Christians to ever be involved in any kind of war or anything like that. And we're supposed to be pacifists. But that's not the case. In fact, there are other parts of the Bible where Jesus calls us to fight to defend the, the rights of the, the, um, the defenseless against injustice. Again, it takes wisdom. It takes discernment. It takes prayer. It takes spending time in the word. This is important. When Jesus is, is teaching, he's not giving more laws and rules. He's illustrating what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. So let me come back to the original question. How about you? Have you accepted Jesus as your teacher? What does it look like to do that? I mean, it's not like a one-step thing. I say yes, and then it's done. Same way with accepting someone as your piano teacher, your math teacher, or your physical trainer. 
It's a daily, ongoing thing. Here's how it starts. It starts with you immersing yourself in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because you have to study his teaching if he's going to be your teacher and his life. You study it on your own. You study it in community. One of the reasons the men Bible study that I'm leading on Wednesday nights is studying through the book of Mark is because we want to immerse ourselves in Jesus' teaching. You need to be in community environments where you can interact with other believers about these kinds of things. And you need to be in environments where God can work in your hearts, in environments of solitude, corporate worship, serving, and ministry. Have you accepted Jesus as your teacher? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, I know for some of us this may be almost like an odd question because we think of ourselves as people who grew up in churches and of course we think I've accepted you as our teacher but the truth is we've accepted you as savior we have trusted in you for our salvation for the forgiveness of sins but we have never really accepted you as teacher immersed ourselves in your teaching have come to you on a daily basis like we would with with a piano teacher or a coach and said i'm going to trust you i'm going to do what you say i'm going to immerse myself in your teaching and even when i don't understand or disagree i'm going to trust that you know more about this than i do And you know about life, the life that I want to have. And so I'm going to do what you say, even though I don't always understand. So God, I I ask that you would root this down deep in our hearts. What does it really mean to begin a journey of Jesus as our teacher? I I just, I, I actually get gripped by a picture of a church the size of hope. If all of us decided, you know what, I'm going to trust him not just as my savior, but as my teacher, What if we spent the next year, 2010, doing nothing more than spending a little time every day reading through the Gospels? There's different parts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, immersing ourselves in your teaching, saying, God, Jesus, what do you have to teach me about life today? Listening to your spirit, being in community, focusing on learning to do life as you would encourage us to do it. What would happen in our hearts? What would happen in our families? What would happen in our church? What would happen in our community? I tell you what would happen. We would become fully transformed followers who go out and transform the state by transforming his heart in Springfield. And I think that would be an amazing thing to be a part of. God, we thank you for your grace and love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.